Hey there, and welcome to the Jimmy's Table podcast at jimmystable.com. I'm your host, Jimmy Humphrey. I'm curiously evangelical, politically homeless, and a dreamer of small things. On this podcast, I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. So if you have honest questions, aren't afraid to have difficult conversations, and want to have a little fun along the way, then pull up a chair. This podcast is for you. So recently, a minister of international fame, Ravi Zacharias, who died last year, has been scandalized by some issues that were unresolved before his death. This includes allegations of abuse, sexual sins, and even rape. These allegations have recently been vetted by a team of lawyers that was hired by his ministry to investigate these allegations, and they believe these allegations to be highly credible and likely true. Because of the nature of these sexual sins, this has revitalized a debate around the so-called Billy Graham rule. This rule has also been recently known as the Mike Pence rule, as Vice President Mike Pence and many other in politics and business are said to observe this code of conduct that was established by Billy Graham and his ministry friends back in 1948. In today's episode, episode 98 of Jimmy'sTable.com podcast, I'm going to talk about rethinking the Billy Graham rule. But before I do that, I want to play this clip to kind of set the tone for the nature of the discussion I'm going to have today around the Billy Graham rule. Uh, it's a clip from the comedy uh, classic When Harry Met Sally. And it's kind of a theme that underpins not only the kind of the perpetual punchline of that comedy classic, romantic comedy classic, but uh, and I think it also provides a good kind of general context of, of the discussion we're going to have today. So without much further ado, I'm going to play this clip again from when Harry met Sally kind of as a background for today's discussion. Of course, that we could never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape or form is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I only think you do. You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. Do too. They do not. Do too. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. What if they don't want to have sex with you? Doesn't matter, because the sex thing is already out there, so the friendship is ultimately doomed, and that is the end of the story. Well, I guess we're not going to be friends, then. Guess not. That's too bad. You were the only person that I knew in New York. So how do you feel about that clip? Pretty humorous little interaction there and definitely for a good chuckle. But I think it kind of clears the room here and acknowledges, you know, there is an inherent um, sort of sexual tension that exists between men and women. The differences that we have between one another and the natural, primal, physiological biological urges that we have are, whether we like it or not, always at play. 
and it always kind of overshadows the nature of our relationships and is always kind of a subtext that exists whether we want to admit it or not. Or maybe, you know, maybe that clip is entirely wrong. Maybe that that perspective is just being poked at and maybe it's idiotic and it's not up with the times. But however you may feel about that uh, clip and what was kind of espoused in that and what it was kind of, uh, you know, preaching at, this clip kind of ultimately at least acknowledges that there is a very real sense in which you and I have an understanding that exists about the differences and the interactions uh, between men and women, and that uh, as enlightened as we may feel we are, as woke as we may feel we are, um, that there's just something about our sex um, that makes interacting as guys with girls different than guys with guys or girls with girls, and that exists in our society whether we want to admit it or not. And because of this kind of backdrop and this kind of understanding that, you know, that there's just something inherently different uh, between the interactions of men and women versus men with men or women with women, um, because of this, back in 1948, a sort of code of conduct was drawn up by Billy Graham and his friends. Uh, it was called by, by them the Modesto Manifesto, because it was put together in Modesto, California. Um, but it became popularized as the Billy Graham Rule. If you're unfamiliar with the Billy Graham Rule, um, or you think you know what the Billy Graham Rule is, let me go ahead and clear the room and tell you exactly what the Billy Graham Rule is so that we can have a fundamental discussion about it before moving forward, because I think there's a lot of people out there who think they know what the Billy Graham Rule is, um, but in truth, they've only heard rumors about it with having, without actually having interacted with uh, the rule itself. So if you're unfamiliar with this rule, the Billy Graham rule is an ethical code of conduct that the evangelist Billy Graham's ministry came up with in 1948 in Modesto, California during one of his evangelistic crusades. Believing that his ministry was going on to do something significant and big and that it would be a very popular ministry, Graham and others came up with this rule as a way to safeguard his ministry from the issues that they believed had plagued some other well-known ministries. The so-called Modesto Manifesto, or as it became later known, the Billy Graham Rule, um, sought to basically safeguard the ministry against allegations or actual abuses of money, sex, and power. While no formal document was ever put together, Graham and his fellow ministers drew up these principles as relating to how they would navigate issues concerning offerings that they received, how those offerings would be distributed, and how they would interact with local churches, how they would specifically avoid criticizing local churches as they floated from town to town and set up tent to preach crusade after crusade, and that they would make it a point to only work with churches that supported their cooperative evangelistic efforts, and that they would use local government official estimates for crowd sizes so as to avoid exaggerations. They also confronted the issue of sex, which became the tenet that was 
most popularized as a result of this manifesto. So it wasn't just a, a safeguard against issues surrounding sex, but it also had to do with money, publication, um, and you know just the general integrity of the ministry. The issue of sex has become the issue from this manifesto that has created the most controversy. No, nobody really cares about the fact that it was dealing with money, that it was in dealing with organizational issues in local churches and who they would align themselves with and how would they publicize the numbers of the people that showed up to their meetings. Nobody cares about all that stuff. It's the issue of sex <laughs> that uh, primarily drives the conversation when it comes to this Modesto Manifesto. Um, and why not? We, we, li- we live in a culture that's obsessed with sex. Um, so it's, it's no surprise that that, that became the primary um, thing. But in regard to the issue of sex, the most famous and controversial ethical consideration that continues to be controversial today is how members of the ministry were to relate to members of the opposite sex. Under the Modesto Manifesto, or the Billy Graham Rule, it was proposed that Billy Graham and others within the ministry must never be alone with a member of the opposite sex other than their wife. And from that day on, Graham and others pledged not to eat, travel with, or meet with a woman other than their wife unless other people were also present. And this rule allowed Billy Graham who was considered by very many in the press to be a very good-looking man for his day, uh, to avoid sexual temptation while traveling abroad, because he often traveled abroad without his wife, as well as to avoid accusations of sexual impropriety with members of the opposite sex. It is said that while Billy Graham was very faithful to observing this particular practice over the years, there are times where he is said to have broken the rule, And even Billy Graham himself has said he wasn't an absolutist when it came to this rule. For example, it is recalled that he once ate with Hillary Clinton in a public venue alone without anybody else except people sitting in tables nearby. But whatever the case, it seems that this rule was something that Billy Graham largely observed. And in the many decades he ministered as an evangelist around the world, often traveling without his wife, he maintained an impeccable reputation regarding his personal conduct in both public and private life. There is no shortage of criticism when it comes to the Billy Graham rule. Perhaps the most famous of these critiques is the perspective of many feminists. There would be those who argue that the rule treats women as objects of sexual lust that must be safeguarded against for fear of infidelity or false accusations. And as a result, women are looked upon as people to be feared instead of respected. And because men who observe this rule make it impossible to meet with women in private, whether in the church or in politics or business, women can be inadvertently discriminated against and disenfranchised because of their sex. As a result, this results in women not having the same quote-unquote access to the opportunities that men would otherwise be able to capitalize on because of their sex. And there is, of course, also the biblical argument against criticisms regarding this rule. Well, as intentioned as Billy Graham might be in this rule, 
It is a it is a rule to be found nowhere in the Bible. Jesus is seen indeed as sometimes deliberately violating the social norms of his day, such as in John chapter 4 when he met with the Samaritan woman at the well. This would have been scandalous even by old standards, not only because of the race of the Samaritan woman, but because of her sex. It would simply have not been proper for Jesus socially in his day to be interacting with this woman at the well. But Jesus seems to have completely forgotten this social convention and flung caution out the window by meeting with this woman anyway, and he didn't seem to care about the possible reputation issues that this could have caused him. Which I find to be a pretty interesting criticism and something that we'll revisit later. But before we do that, I want to talk about my personal experience with the Billy Graham Rule. I've been somebody who's been to Bible college and seminary, and I've been involved with the church over the years in a variety of ministries and capacities. I've been taught the Billy Graham Rule by many, and have been involved with ministries that more or less have practiced it in one form or another. And I will say, I have mixed feelings about this rule. And generally speaking, I'm just really not a fan. However, I don't think that it deserved the scathing rebuke or criticism that some folks tend to give this rule. Such people tend to be impressed, I believe, by their own levels of self-righteous wokeness, and in my estimation, have never seriously had to consider their own reputations and its connection to something larger than themselves. That's what this rule was ultimately designed to safeguard about. For example, and just this is a personal example. For example, when I was in my 20s, I was engaged to somebody. And that somebody happened to be a worship leader and youth pastor in the church that we attended. And while I also served this church and regularly ministered to it, I didn't have any official title or position. My fiancé at the time also happened to live right next door to the church in a small, multifamily apartment. And I usually, because of the nature of my life and my work and, and the nature of her life and the nature of her work, I usually only had the opportunity to see my then fiancé on the weekends or Wednesday nights. And that also happened to regularly coincide with stuff involving the church. Uh, and so, before I would go to church sometimes, I'd stop by and see her. Or because I knew we had plans afterwards and we're going to do things after church, I would just simply, for a matter of convenience, park my Jeep over at an apartment uh, instead of the church parking lot. And this was always very visible because, like I said, it was right next door to the church. And recently, as it would so happen, even though I'm no longer engaged to this particular woman and I didn't end up marrying her, I married somebody... Uh, much better, <laughs> my wife. Um, I recently, though, happened to be able to talk uh, to somebody I used to go to this church with who was one of the kids that we ministered to at that particular church. And I was talking to him on the phone, and this has been, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years or so since I've seen this kid. He's now an adult. He's now a man. And we were reminiscing and talking um, about our lives and about the past, uh, and he just so happened to drop in the midst of our conversation that 
as he was reminiscing about me and this particular girl that I was engaged to, um, he said as a kid that he was kind of under the impression that me and this girl were kind of quote unquote shacked up together and quote, living in sin because of the many times he'd go to church and see my Jeep in her driveway. And even though we were not doing such, we weren't living together, we weren't shacked up, we weren't sleeping together, this young man was under the impression that we were living together. And apparently, he wasn't the only one that had this thought or impression. Though, my understanding is, vast majority of the people in the church did not, because most people knew us to be outstanding individuals acting above board and having great character, and they knew our personal religious commitments to the Lord and sexual fidelity to the scriptures and what the scriptures have to teach about uh, such relationships. But you know, I didn't know all this until recently, <laughs> you know, 15, 20 years after the fact. But to know such was the impression of one of the kids at church shows us and shows me that even though we were completely innocent parties, that it's not very hard, even as completely innocent parties in which most people assume nothing scandalous is going on, it's perfectly easy for people who even love you and go to church with you to kind of maybe think something else is not going on that's exactly kosher. Uh, and it's easy to develop a bad reputation even among those who you interact with on a regular basis. And it just goes to show how easy it is for clouds of suspicious uh, thoughts to form. Clouds that I had to clear up 15 years after the fact. So, <laughs> kind of something to think about there, right? Um, with all that said, let me go ahead and move on. I want to talk about a positive take that I have of the Billy Graham rule. So while I'm not necessarily a huge fan of the Billy Graham rule, I gotta say, I personally understand why Billy Graham and others have adhered to this rule. I personally respect the spirit of the intention behind the rule, even if I don't necessarily agree with the rule itself. There is a very practical, quote-unquote, street smarts sort of mentality about the Billy Graham rule that I really do appreciate. It reminds me of the common advice we give to folks who, you know, go out into the city late at night. We advise them to walk in pairs and not to walk alone. And we encourage such, not because we think the city we live in is full of criminals up to no good, or to somehow shame victims who have, you know, suffered mishap as a result of walking around a city by themselves late at night. But because we simply fundamentally understand that the world can be a difficult place to navigate. I remember when I went on to Philadelphia for a trip at work and uh, one of my coworkers and I, we were at some conference until late at night, about 10 o'clock at night. And we still wanted to go out to Philadelphia and see the city a little bit and maybe even get a little something to eat and drink after the conference. Um, but we decided, you know... We weren't just going to do such alone. We got together as a team. We weren't just going to explore as individuals and just see what could happen late at night in Philadelphia by ourselves. 
we we went together, walked together, uh, and went out together and had a good time. And that's not because we were thinking necessarily anything wrong was going to happen to us. We just recognized that, hey, we live in a complex world. Tragedy unfolds, and we could happen to have it unfold upon us. So we didn't go at it alone in Philadelphia by ourselves. We went together uh, and had a good time and came back and were perfectly safe. Because you see, as humans, we fundamentally understand that even if we don't perceive that we're in immediate danger, we do understand that we live in a world that's inherently risky and that we need to do such practical things from time to time to mitigate risk. And as such, we come up with practical solutions to meet real-world problems. These are actions that won't be without unintended consequences for sure, but these consequences are seen often as less problematic than the trouble that you could otherwise get in. And like it or not, we do we have to acknowledge we do live in a fallen a broken world in which men and women and their innocent interactions with one another can open the door to not so innocent interactions. And even when all those actions are quote unquote above board, even well-meaning loved ones like the kid that I used to go to church with can come away with the wrong impressions and even make false accusations. Reputations are important things, and I think we need to acknowledge that, especially when your personal reputation and character is connected something to something bigger than yourself. And I believe at the heart of the Billy Graham rule, they have in mind passages such as Romans 14 through uh, Romans chapter 14, verses 13 through 23, where it says things like, Do not allow what you consider then to be spoken of as evil, and don't place an obstacle or stumbling block in your brother or sister's way, and it is good not to do anything by which would cause your brothers or sisters to stumble. Or passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3, which talks about how a minister must be an individual who is above reproach in all his conduct and that they have a good reputation not only with those inside the church, but those who are outside the church. But with all that said, with the positive things that I have to say about the Billy Graham rule, I do want to be critical. I do want to give some negative takes here on the Billy Graham rule besides the ones that have already been offered. These are, these are my personal concerns. I would personally echo the concerns that the feminists sometimes make in regard to the Billy Graham rule mostly in regard to the disenfranchisement of women. When the Billy Graham rule was established, culturally speaking, our world was a very different place than it was now. Women were largely not leaders in the church, and politics, or the business world. But today, that's not simply the case. As a result, there is a very real chance that today you could create a quote-unquote all-boys club type of environment that possibly shuts women out of opportunities that they would naturally be exposed to if they simply were men. <laughs> and that's a very real possibility that that could happen. And as a result, we do have to consider that this could create an all-boys mentality that unintentionally shuts women out simply because they are women. And like it or not, Billy Graham rule, that's a possible unintended consequence of this rule. And that's been a criticism that's been levied at 
certain business leaders and Mike Pence. And I know in some recent discussions that I had with some ministers, particularly ministers in which there are women who are allowed to be pastors of churches, because in case you're not aware of, some denominations um, don't permit women to be ministers. But even in the denominations that do, because of the Billy Graham rule, um, and because men feel uncomfortably uncomfortable being alone with their female colleagues, those female colleagues are often left out of opportunities to grow in their their leadership capacities within the church and as as ministers. Um, and they're not able to receive the same counseling or mentorship that's afforded to men, all simply because people are worried about the sexual improprieties that could be created by such interactions. And like it or not, those are the unintentional consequences of this rule. And such perhaps was less of an issue in 1948 when women simply were not involved in our society to the degree they are today in regard to the church, in regard to politics, in regard to business. The society we live in is far different than those days. And I see the Billy Graham rule as possibly being a good thing at the time it was implemented, and it certainly had an air of wisdom about it. But culturally speaking, I'm not so sure that it is as wise to follow such a rule today because of the unintended consequences that such rules have. Theologically speaking, though, not just culturally speaking, but theologically speaking, I also have problems with it. Women are created in the image and likeness of God, just as men are. And as such, they should not be treated as risk and liabilities to be managed. Ha! Let me say that again. Women are created in the image and likeness of God, just as men are. And as such, they should not be treated as risk and liabilities to be managed. Ha! That'll preach. <laughs> they need to be treated as fellow image bearers and not simply as a subset of the humanity that must somehow be handled with special safety gloves. Also, I believe the Billy Graham rule creates a sort of legalism when it is strictly observed. And you might ask, well, what do you mean by legalism, Jimmy? What, is, what does that term legalism mean and how do you understand it? I look at legalism as the rules we set up to create an extra barrier around the rules we actually want to avoid breaking. For example, think of legalism as sort of the guardrails we put up along the road to avoid driving off the road. Now, we already know that there's rules. You should not drive off the road because driving off the road is bad. And you and I, on a daily basis, have zero intentions of driving off the road. Because we know the consequences of such would be devastating not only to our cars, but also possibly our lives. But, even in spite of having this, I'm not going to drive off the road mentality, the government has still built guardrails on the road to keep us from possibly ever doing such, whether we intend to do such or not. And frankly, this appears to be wise. But it can create some ethically sticky issues when it comes to policing issues surrounding morality. Jesus harshly criticized the religious leaders of his day for all the legalistic traditions 
that they had established, the, all the rules on top of the rules to keep you from breaking the rules um, and commandments of God. So, for example, take the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, it is written, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And understanding this, then the religious leaders of Jesus' day decided that God's name was so sacred that they had to protect it from being flippantly used by people on a daily basis. They didn't just want somebody using God's name in some sort of flippant manner. And as a result, they set up guardrails to prevent taking God's name in vain. And they set up so many guardrails when it came to taking God's name in vain that they would not even allow God's name to be read when the scriptures were being publicly read in the synagogue. In fact, when they would read the scriptures aloud in public and in the synagogue, they wanted God's name to be so revered and so um, protected that when they saw the name of God written in scriptures, instead of simply saying God's name as they read the scriptures out loud, they would actually substitute God's name with the word Lord. Or sometimes they would simply say the phrase, the name. <laughs> in lieu of actually saying God's name as they read from the scriptures. And such seems like a rather genius move by the religious leaders in Jesus' day. And there, again, seems to be kind of a, a wisdom to it, an appeal to that. But this creates a problem. And setting up all these sort of guardrails to prevent God's name from being said in a flippant manner and taken in vain it actually becomes impossible to say God's name altogether because of these guardrails. And instead of God's name being held up as a beautiful thing to be praised, God's name becomes something that we can no longer even safely utter. And soon, it's not even said at all. The Billy Graham rule, as, as it's understood puts, I believe, us in similar theological waters when it comes to navigating the complexities of interactions with the opposite sex. Well-intentioned as it may be, and as much wisdom as it may even have, the safeguards it looks to create ends up destroying something beautiful altogether. And the interactions that individuals like Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well in John, in John chapter 4 simply would not be afforded to us today if we were to follow that rule. So if not the Billy Graham rule, then what? Do we just say, screw it all and act like there's no room for wisdom in our interactions with members of, members of the opposite sex? I think we need to be careful with such thinking. And we need to be careful with hard, fast, one-size-fits-all type rules. And I worry about those who feel the constant need to come up with prescriptive legalisms like we see in the Billy Graham rule. But with that said, I also worry about the people who are totally dismissive about navigating the complexities of human social interactions, especially when it comes to the complexities that exist between individuals, not only of the same sex, uh, but also the opposite sex. Whether you like it or not, there are differences between men and women. And whether you like it or not, we do interact with men 
in ways that are different with women and vice versa. And, any, and frankly, I believe anyone who says otherwise and acts like that they just act like there's no differences at all, frankly, I think such people are just too woke to live on the planet Earth. And they don't have a firm grasp of reality. In my opinion, such people are fools. But with all that said, what can we do? Do we just act like the Billy Graham rule is the thing that we need to follow in, in lieu of anything with any other sort of wisdom? Or do we just act uh, like some people would have us to believe that there are no differences between uh, the, the sexes and we just need to all act like we're all the same and that there's no differences at all? Well, you could take that approach, either of those approaches, but I think either of those approaches are fundamentally flawed. So let me propose a couple ideas. I don't want to propose any hard rules um, about how we move forward from the Billy Graham rule. But I just want to propose a couple principles. Number one, let's treat everyone as individuals created in the image of God and that such persons are worthy of honor, dignity, and being treated with respect, regardless of their gender. Gender. Don't treat people as liabilities to be managed, but as fellow sons and daughters of God to be celebrated. Number two, recognize that creating boundaries with other human beings is a healthy thing. We do this in regard to friends, family, work, and ministry. Nobody has the right to have unmitigated access to your life, your job, your, your attention, your ministry, or any such thing. So define the type of access that you will allow all individuals to have in your life, both personal and professional. Number three, if you are married, talk with your spouse about what sort of boundaries you want to create in your relationship outside the home. Decide what is comfortable for the both of you and honor your commitments to one another. But at the same time, recognize that maybe a little flexibility might be in order. Make room, though, ultimately for transparency when it comes to such things. And if you ever find yourself um, in a situation in which the general rules that you guys have um, committed to need to be broken, keep the other person in the loop and make sure they're, they're comfortable without, with such interactions. Number four, when it comes to work or counseling or ministry or whatever it is you may be involved with, Create opportunities for equal access that operate within your personal boundaries that only, and that, that only not only safeguards you, but the people you are working with. Number five, seek to live a transparent life. Whenever possible, avoid being alone with anyone that's not in your immediate family. And if such is not always possible, make sure the doors and windows are always open and that you only meet in public places where others are present or otherwise aware. And if such is impossible, look to reschedule. Look to get up another opportunity. Look to do it again another time. Take a rain check. And number six, be mindful of your sexual and emotional attraction to others. Recognize when lust exists within you. Recognize when that lust exists within others. Especially if it might be guiding you into inappropriate interactions with others or causing you to act 
in ways that could be perceived as flirtatious, especially if that flirtation is with people that you are not married to. And if such exists, if you recognize that you are struggling with lust issues, you know, take those temptations to the Lord and handle them as Christ taught us to handle them. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. So everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, episode 98 of the jimmystable.com podcast, Rethinking the Billy Graham Rule. Hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, email me, jimmy at jimmystable.com. Share this podcast episode with others in all the different ways it can be shared. Email it to a friend, a colleague. Send it out on Twitter. Send it out on Facebook. Uh, Leave reviews on Apple Podcasts and other places. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the jimmystable.com podcast at jimmystable.com slash subscribe, where I have all the different ways you can subscribe, either through email or through Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, and all the other places that you can get your podcast. Um, I'd love to hear with you. Uh, and let me know what you think of this podcast, either through emailing me, again, jimmy at jimmystable.com, or you can find me at Twitter or Facebook, and I have links to that, at, again, at jimmystable.com. Everybody, this has been Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com, where I'm having conversations about the intersection of faith, life, and culture. Hope I've given you something to chew on today regarding rethinking the Billy Graham rule. Um, and, you know, I hope you take something away with this. hope this is able to to give you something to chew on um, and um, ultimately, you know, something that you're able to build your life around. So everybody, again, Jimmy Humphrey, jimmystable.com. Take care, everybody. God bless and have a good one. That's all I have to say about that. That's so right on, man. You said it all. <laughs>